This I recall to mind, and therefore I have hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight thyself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit thy way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. All scriptures God breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Before we begin our study of God's Word this evening, let's make sure that we are in fellowship, ready to study God's Word, ready to focus and concentrate. We have a difficult passage to work our way through, so we need to make sure that the pastor is under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Something like that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can come to you before we begin our study of your word, and we know that you hear us. We know from the promises we've studied that we have not because we ask not. And we know from the promises of your word that our Lord said, Hitherto have you asked nothing in my name, ask and you shall receive, that your joy may be full. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we study, that we may assimilate them into our lives and see how they apply. We know that under the leading, guiding ministry of God the Holy Spirit, under the filling of the Holy Spirit, this is accomplished. So, Father, now we pray that we can concentrate and focus on your word this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles with me to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, and we have worked our way down to verse 5. James chapter 4, verse 5. One announcement before we get started or get too far into this. Remember, we're going to have a schedule. There are going to be three or four times in the next six months to challenge your flexibility and to test to see if you are truly reading the bulletin. Next week on Wednesday night, if you show up for Bible class... You will be, you will think the rapture occurred and you weren't one of the elect. Bible class next week is on Tuesday night. Okay? Next week and next week only. The following week is Thanksgiving. There will be no Wednesday night Bible class on Thanksgiving. In preparation for Thanksgiving, we will be spending Thanksgiving with our family, so they don't live in this region, so that means we do have to travel on Wednesday night, unfortunately. There will be another night coming up in, and I haven't decided yet on this, but I think that uh, uh, we're going to move Wednesday night to Thursday night that week, about the middle of December, just for the sake of testing your flexibility. What's, what's going on here is that the Evangelical Theological Society, which is a collection of scholars, academicians, theologians, theologian wannabes, 
who gather together every year. And this is the heavy hitters, almost all the major faculty members of most of the seminaries, from Southern Baptist seminaries to Presbyterian seminaries to under the broad umbrella of evangelicalism. The only thing you have to sign for a doctrinal statement to be a member is that you believe the Scripture is the inerrant, infallible Word of God. That's it. But they do, it's three days solid of meetings where scholars present papers on different subjects. The theme of the ETS meeting this year is the kingdom of God. Keynote speakers are going to be very interesting. John MacArthur is one keynote speaker. Uh, Bruce Waltke, who was chairman of the Old Testament department before I came to Dallas. In fact, I think Charlie Clough, whom we all know, Charlie was his uh, student aide. When Charlie, or his teaching assistant, when Charlie went through Dallas, Walkie's brilliant as a Hebrew scholar. He's, we always laugh about his fluidity as a theologian. He's been a dispensationalist, covenant theologian, Calvinist, Arminian. He just kind of goes everywhere. What we, dis, Tommy and I always talk about it, that what we have is some guys who've specialized in the languages and they're excellent mechanics. You'd never put them behind the wheel of a car in a racetrack, but you want them back in the shed working on your car. You know, these guys are great when it comes to the basic tools and mechanics of language. But when they start trying to put things together in terms of theology, uh, they're dangerous. And uh, Walkie's brilliant in the Hebrew, but he's held almost every theological position known to man, it seems, since he left Dallas Seminary. So he's one of the speakers. And then there's two or three others that are quite well known. And it should be a fascinating time. I've never been to an ETS meeting, at least not since I was a student at Dallas 20 years ago. So I'm really looking forward to that. Normally, they, don't have, they haven't had a theme in the last 10 years or 15 years that I've really been interested in. But this year, it's the kingdom of God. And next year, it's Israel, past, present, and future. And next year, it's going to be in Nashville. So that's going to be interesting. Uh, Tommy usually makes these. He won't make it. Our good friend Randy Price is giving a couple of different papers at the seminar, so it's just going to be a fascinating time. And then in December, the reason I'm going to be gone then is that I have—I was a founding member of the pre-trib rapture study group. I have never been to a pre-trib rapture study group meeting. It is in Dallas. It's on a Monday through Wednesday noon, and because the last time I was on something had a little foul up with the airplane, I decided just for the sake of making sure we don't lose Bible class because of the late plane, we'll just go ahead and bump it to Thursday night that week, and then I'll be rested, and we won't miss our midweek feeding on the Word of God. So we'll test our flexibility. And there are some other things coming up in the fall now and then. When I was down in Houston at Baraka, whenever the colonel went out of town... We just didn't have Bible class that week, just nothing. So instead of just canceling, we're going to try to uh, use a flexibility procedure and just bump it one night here or there, and that way we can continue our study in the Word. Okay, James chapter 4, verse 5. A question, or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? Quote, he jealously desires the spirit which he has made, a, made to dwell in us. Close quote. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, we may get down to another verse, but I want to stop there right now. A couple of things I want you to notice before we get into the exegetical issues here. 
First of all, if you notice, verse 5 says, Do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? And then we have a quote. Notice that there is also a Scripture quote in verse 6. In most of your Bibles, the quote in verse 6 is in um, uh, smaller, small uppercase letters. But the quote in verse 5 is not in small uppercase letters. And the reason is, and this is part of the problem, is that the that what appears to be a quote by its introduction, the Scripture speaks, what appears to be a quote is not found in any verse in any Old Testament version, either Hebrew, Old Testament, or the Septuagint. So nobody knows where that comes from, and that creates a tremendous amount of confusion among Bible students, and I'm not exempt, uh, to be honest with you, from that confusion. I don't know and have wrestled with this passage a number of times and don't know the solution to that conundrum. Verse 6, though, is clearly a quote, and that is from uh, Proverbs 3.34. So that introduces part of the problem. Now, whenever you do Bible study, you have two things that are very important. The first is translation. See, everybody seems to, in an American fast food, instant gratification society, we want stage three, which is application. We want to know, what is this, how does this apply to me? But before you get to any application, you have to make sure that you have the second stage, which is the correct interpretation. See, the interpretation means what did the original author intend to communicate? Called authorial intent. What was he saying? What was in his mind? What was he intending to communicate? And so that's why you exercise certain principles of what's called hermeneutics or interpretation. uh, Literal, historical, grammatical principles of interpretation. You interpret the scriptures as they would in a normal, plain sense. That means you recognize that there are figures of speech and you have to understand the meaning and significance of those figures of speech. But if you don't understand what the author intended to communicate and you misunderstand that, then your application is going to be way off target. So we have to understand the author's intent. But before we do that, we have a slight problem because the Bible was not originally written in English. The Bible wasn't even originally written in Elizabethan English. The Bible was originally written in Koine Greek. And as a result of that, we have to get into the original language to make sure we have a correct translation. Once we've corrected the translation, then we can approach the issue of interpretation. Interpretation asks the question, what or what did the author mean? Application answers the question, what does that, what the author meant, what does that mean to me? And too often we jump down here, and if we jump here before we've done translation interpretation work, you end up in pure subjectivity, and you may not, whatever you're applying may have nothing at all to do with God's instructions to you. So, we look at this, and we have to look at a couple of things in relationship to context.
First of all, the point of this question, do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose, is to confront the readers with the reality of their own subjective arrogance in either reinterpreting or ignoring what the Scripture says. See, that's the problem, is they, they think the Scripture doesn't really mean what it says. That's the, if you, if you just took this and, and broke it down into plain English, James would be saying, do you think this Scripture speaks in vain? Do you think the Scripture really doesn't mean what it says? And the word for thinking here, when he says, do you think, is the word we studied on Sunday morning in James, dokeo. D-O-K-E-O. Now, there are two words for thinking that are common in the Scriptures in Greek. There is dokeo and phroneo. And phroneo has to do with objective thinking, doctrinal thinking. Dokeo has to do with subjective thinking. That means you're thinking in terms of your own experiences. You've had certain experiences in life or you've been taught a certain way of thinking about things. And so when you come to the Bible, rather than letting the Bible speak for itself and trying to understand the Bible on its own terms, you're, you, you say, well, okay, that has something to do with what I heard somebody else say or, what, or, or some uh, uh, technique I heard about or some psychologist I heard speak. So instead of let, interpreting the Bible on its own, you're interpreting it in terms of what somebody else somewhere else has said, talking about some other subject. In other words, you just listen and reinterpret this within your own subjective orientation and not in terms of an objective standard of what is the Bible saying on its own. So by using the word dokeo, James is implying that they're being subjective, which we've already seen. They have been unfaithful to their relationship with God. That's why he called them adulteresses in verse 4. If they were not in a covenant relationship with God, he would have called them immoral or spiritually unfaithful. But by calling them adulteresses, it indicates that they did have a relationship with God based on the new covenant. Christ died on the cross as a substitute for our sins. So they are believers, and they do know the principle that friendship with the world is hostility to God, but they're not living that way. They are living in terms of antinomianism. They are abusing the grace of God, and so they are thinking that they can just do whatever they want to do without regard for God's commandments. And when you get, especially into a book like James, to even suggest that the commandments of God in the New Testament are irrelevant is absurd. There are, uh, I forget, I, when we initially initiated the study, I think there's like 80 or 90 different imperative verbs in this short five-chapter epistle. That's 80 to 90 commands directed to the believer. We're going to come to a section from verse 7 to verse 10, four verses that rotate around ten aorist active imperatives. James definitely wants to communicate that there are certain standards and principles for the spiritual life and that the believer is supposed to live in accord with those principles. He cannot treat them and is not to treat them lightly or to think or rationalize his sin by just thinking that, that, well, God has forgiven me. God, Christ died on the cross, paid for my sin, so it really doesn't matter what I do. I can go ahead and do it. God is going to take care of it in divine discipline. And when you treat God's grace lightly, you might think you get away with it, but we never do. 
the Supreme Court of Heaven will always make sure that we are taken care of in terms of divine discipline. God loves us, and the Scripture says that that just as a father loves and disciplines his own son, so does God the Father. He disciplines us. The principle is given in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, which we will be studying this Sunday morning. Whatsoever a man reaps, this he will also sow. So that's the principle of divine discipline. And James is warning these believers that he's writing to that they are living in carnality. In fact, they're in reversionism. They are treating the grace of God lightly, and they need to recover. They need to get back on track. We have seen that up to this point, he seems to really be challenging and confronting his readers. He's castigating them. He's challenging them because of their extended carnality. There's antagonism, there's quarrels, there's division, there's strife, there's discord, there's animosity, malice, and hatred in the congregation he's writing to. They are all caught up in self-absorption and the arrogant skills, self-absorption, self-indulgence leading to self-gratification, self-justification, and self-deception. They're operating on the lust patterns. What is the, the verse 2? You lust and do not have. They are operating according to the norms and standards of cosmic thinking, which we call human viewpoint. They are not operating on the basis of Scripture. They are operating on the basis of wisdom, which is called in 315, earthly, natural, and demonic. They have neglected prayer life and their relationship with the Lord. And when they do pray, it's simply to use God for their own selfish purposes. This is standard operating procedure When we go into carnality, we want to use God for what we want. And that's typical of carnal people. They are users. They want to use other people. They want to use their spouses. They want to use their children. They want to use and manipulate their parents. They want to use and manipulate their friends. But they want to use people because they're operating on a self-absorbed orientation. So they want to use everyone around them, including God, to fit whatever they want and to follow their own plan and their own agenda. The inherent problem here is that these believers have failed to uh, renovate their thinking. They have failed to let their human viewpoint thinking that they brought with them into salvation be transformed by the renewing of their minds. Now, in verses 1 through 4, it's clear that James is really reaming them out. Verse 4, you adulteresses, he starts off. Do you not know the friendship with the world is hostility towards God? And then we come to verse 5. In verse 5, he asks this question, and it's somewhat cryptic and difficult to understand what he's getting at. And then in verse 6, he says, but he gives a greater grace. Now, it's important to notice that that verse, verse 6, begins with a but in your English, It's a contrastive de conjunction, D-E, in the Greek. And that's the first time you have a shift. So the first thing we need to notice is that from verses 1 down through verse 5, he's castigating the carnal readers of his letter. He's reaming them out. There's not a shift in his tone until you get the the contrastive conjunction, but... In verse 6. So that means that in verse 5, whatever he is saying, it's still part of reaming out and correcting these carnal believers. 
He's still confronting them. So their arrogance is still in operation. Now, as I've said, we have several problems when we come to this. The first, as I stated, is that there's no passage like this in the Old Testament. So we do have a problem in that just everywhere in the New Testament where you do have a lead-in like this, uh, that do you think the Scripture says that it's followed by a direct quote. But this quote can't be found anywhere, people guess. But I think that what happens is, the best explanation is, that he's going to quote Scripture. And he starts off and he says, don't you realize the Scripture says? And then there's a parenthesis, because he wants to remind them of a principle. Then he comes back and gives the quote in verse 6. So from 5a, which starts off in the New American Standard, and it's a lousy translation. He jealously desires the Spirit. That's completely wrong. Starting there, down through, therefore it says in verse 6, that's a parenthesis. And then he's going to come back and give the positive. See, he's been telling them, he's been confronting them, and he's been challenging them with their wrong carnal behavior. And now he's going to give the solution starting in verse 6. But before we get to the solution, we have to figure out what verse 5 means. There's a quote. And when you get the quote in verse 6, it's clearly from Proverbs 3, 34, which reads a little different in the English. In Proverbs 3, 34, he says, Though he scoffs at the scoffers, yet he gives grace to the afflicted. So one of the things we have to deal with is that the quote in verse 6 is not a quote from the Hebrew Old Testament. It's a quote from the Septuagint, which is the LXX. That's the the abbreviation for Septuagint because that's the Roman numeral 70. And the um, uh, sort of the legend was that 70 rabbis in 70 days translated the first five books, the Pentateuch of the Old Testament in Alexandria so that the Jews who were in Egypt, who had forgotten Hebrew, could no longer understand Hebrew, would have an Old Testament in their, in their uh, native Greek language. So that was the common New Testament used by the disciples. Most of the quotes in the New Testament are quotes from the Greek Septuagint and not quotes from the Hebrew Old Testament. So God the Holy Spirit still made sure that what they quoted, even though it might have differed from the Septuagint at some point, it still was an accurate reflection of truth. He preserved it in terms of inerrancy. So before we get there, let's understand verse 5. First thing we have to do when you break down exegetically and you look at something, you have a sentence in the English in the New American Standard, it's translated, He jealously desires the Spirit, which He has made to dwell in us. Well, I kind of scratch my head when I look at it in the Greek, and the first thing you do is you have to say, what is the main verb? And the main verb here is epi, uh, epipatheo. E-P-I-P-O-T-H-E-O. Now, this is the same word we've seen earlier in both our study in James and our study in Galatians, and it has to do with lust, desire, it has to do with um, uh, 
has strong or deep desire for something, longing to have something, uh, lust, recognizing that there's a lack in the life. That's the basic meaning of the word. Now, when you break it down in terms of its exegesis, it is a present, active, indicative. Now, this means that it's a continuous action. The subject performs the action, and it's in the mood of reality. But it's a third-person Singular, he, she, or it. That's third person singular. I is first person. You is is second person singular. Y'all is second person plural. He, she, or it is third person singular. Now, in Greek, if you want to say he did something, then all you have to do is say epipathes. You don't have to use the pronoun he. It's embedded, that the, the third person singular is embedded within the meaning of the verb. Now, sometimes it adds the pronoun. If the pronoun's there, then that's for emphasis to make sure you get the point. And that you pay attention to in exegesis. And then it will also mention the subject. Now, in this case, after identifying the verb, the next thing I do is I scratch my head and I say, what's the subject? Now, this is why Greek is so so nice to study. In English, you determine the subject of the sentence by looking at its position in the sentence. It's usually right before the verb. When you say the boy hit the ball, hit is the verb, boy's right in front of it, that's a subject. You tell the subject by its position in the sentence. In Greek, what you have to do is look for the word that's in the nominative case. And it can be anywhere in the sentence. Well, in the way the Greek structure is laid out, the very next word after the verb is looks like this. It has the definite article ta, and then you have the noun pneuma. T-O-P-N-E-U-M-A. This is the word for breath, wind, spirit, Holy Spirit, human spirit. can be mental attitude. Attitude has a number of meanings. This is the definite article. The troublesome thing is that pneuma is a neuter gender verb. That means that the nominative case ends with the letter A and the accusative case also ends with the letter A. So when you look at tanuma, it can either be the subject of the verb, the spirit desires, or it can be the direct object of the verb, he desires the spirit. Oh. Now we've got a problem. We've got to figure out what is going to be the subject of the sentence. Is it the subject or is it the direct object? The next problem you have, and this is no small problem, is you have to decide is he, is, what pneuma means. This is your lexical study. What does it mean? Are we talking about wind or breath? Are we talking about the Holy Spirit? Are we talking about the human spirit? Are we talking about a a mindset, disposition, mental attitude. What are we talking about here? See, isn't this fun? See, y'all just... I thought I'd just give y'all a real example of how I spend my day. Scratching my head and staring at the computer screen. My eyes are about shot today. And I've worked through this passage before, and, and I ended up coming to the same conclusion I did the well, first time I worked through it 20 years ago. But, 
but I had to do it through a very through a circumlocution today. I wanted to make sure that that I knew what I was doing 20 years ago. So you look at this and you say, okay, now we have both a grammatical problem and we have a lexical problem, and all of that revolves around a theological problem. Now, if you look at the New American Standard, the New American Standard says, translates this, God, uh, excuse me, He jealously desires. So they're making a decision that, number one, the subject of the verb is going to be God. God desires something. And that the, the pneuma there is not only the Holy Spirit, but it is also going to be um, uh, the object of the verb. Now, the King James Version takes it completely different. Listen to how the King James handles it. Do you think that the Scripture says in vain, which is a fine translation? This is how they translate that one section. Compare it. I'll read it a couple of times so you can see the difference. Instead of he jealously desires the Spirit, the King James translates it, the Spirit that dwells in us. See, they take the Spirit here as the subject of the verb. They're saying it's the Spirit that dwells in us, and it's not God that's performing the action. The spirit that dwells in us lusteth to envy. Now at that point, lusteth to envy, you just, it just goes right over our heads. And the thundering diction of the King James loses all meaning for us. But I think that the King James translators were exactly correct in taking the Tanuma here as the subject. The Spirit. And here, we still have to define whether it's going to be human spirit, mindset, disposition, or mental attitude, but it is the Spirit that it's talking about. Why? Because if you take the interpretation, He, God, desires the Spirit, what you're saying is that this is saying, God has placed the Holy Spirit in you. And... You're a carnal believer, but God desires to have a relationship with the Holy Spirit. Now, you've got a couple of problems. First of all, that's taking this sense of jealousy as a positive thing. Now, the word for je- that's translated jealousy is the Greek word thanos. We've seen it in our study of the works of the flesh in Galatians. Now, we know that in the Old Testament, in the, in the Ten Commandments, God says, you shall have no other God before me because I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, even though I believe that's an anthropopathism, nevertheless, the word that's translated jealous there is not thanos. It's a Hebrew word, but in the, in the, in the Septuagint and in the New Testament, thanos is always a negative, sinful Connotation. It never is applied to God anywhere. So if you're going to take it the way the New American Standard does, you're going to have to take this desire as a good thing, this jealously jealous desire as a good thing, and you don't have any basis for it anywhere in Old or New Testament. So that's wrong. Secondly, you're making this a positive verse, and as we said already, 
the contrast, the contrastive conjunction doesn't hit you until verse 6, the but, so that verse 5 must still be in the negative, challenge, corrective stage of, of the first five verses. It's not a good thing, it's a bad thing. So it doesn't fit the context to translate it the way the New American Standard translates it. So we take Numa as the subject, and we should translate this, the spirit, and then the verb, epithumeo, deeply desires, to indicate strong desire, the spirit strongly desires, and then we come to a phrase, envious lust, because that's using that compound word indicating its negative connotation. So the spirit deeply desires envious lust. Okay, well that's still a little fuzzy, so we're going to um, try to clarify this a little bit. You have another phrase in here. You have the phrase ha, and then the verb katoikeo. This is this the ha here h o is your relative pronoun. That should be translated that. The verb is an aorist, and it means to settle, to establish, to place, to put, to reside in. And I think it should be translated the spirit that has resided in us. is prone to envious lust or deeply desires. It moves toward the concept of desire is to move in a direction. So that's why it should be translated. The spirit that has resided in us is prone or is attracted to, moves toward envious lust. Okay, now we've done our exegesis and we figured out a correct translation of what it means. What, what the original writer wrote. Now we have to decide, what does he mean? That's the next stage. First you get your good translation, then you, get your, you find out what it means. What he means when he says the Spirit that has resided in us, is he's not using this as a technical term for the human spirit or Holy Spirit. He's talking about the mental attitude that is now controlling the, the writer, the people he's writing to, the recipients of the letter, in their carnality, and they can control any of us in our carnality. And this mental attitude we would call the carnal mind, as Paul does in Romans chapter 8. And so what James is saying is that when you get into carnality, you get into reversionism, the kind of mental attitude that takes over your soul moves in the direction of envious lust. And we've already seen this problem back in verse 13, or back in verse 14 of chapter 3. It says, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and lie against the truth. For one, what's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust, epithemao, and do not have, so you commit murder and are envious and cannot obtain. In other words, what James is doing when he gets ready to quote the Scripture, the scriptural solution to their problem is he takes a parenthesis out in verse 5 
to remind them that they're being controlled by a carnal mental, mental attitude that is promoting envious lust, which is the underlying cause of the division, the animosity, and the hostility in the congregation. Now, did everybody get that? I still see a couple of smiles, a couple of chuckles, and a few people who are saying, where did that come from? I was at work. It was just a nice day today. I really didn't have to think a whole lot. And what in the world did I do coming to Bible class tonight? Okay, let's go back over it just one brief time before we move on. Do you think that the Scripture speaks to no, no purpose? Reminder. Remember, the spirit that has taken up residence in you, your mental attitude, is prone towards envious lust. But God gives a greater grace. See, He's going to come in and emphasize the solution. God gives a greater grace. Greater than what? It starts off with the comparative adjective, my zone. M-E-I-Z-O-N, indicating something that is superior to or greater than something else. It is a comparative adjective. Greater than what? Greater than what it's contrasted to, which is the carnality, the mental attitude sins, the destructiveness, the divisiveness, all of the problems and stress that is fragmenting the people and the congregation he's addressing. He's saying God is greater. God's grace is greater than any problem you can ever face in life. Remember, the human solution is no solution. God's solution is the only effective solution. That's what he's saying. God gives a greater grace. It reminds me of the episode in the life of the Apostle Paul when he was attacked by a demon. Now, that demon, uh, it's not a direct confrontation. He's not out here doing battle with some sort of ghost. He's not a, a forerunner of the Ghostbusters. He, is, uh, he has some particular problems that ultimately are brought into his life because of uh, certain demonic factors. The reason he says that, he says, I have a thorn in the flesh, that there is a messenger of Satan. And the word translated messenger there in 1 Corinthians 11 is angelos. Messenger, an angelos of Satan, an angel of Satan. So a fallen angel is tormenting him, and Paul prayed three times, Lord, take this from me. And the Lord said, no, I'm not. Why? Because my grace is sufficient for you. Sufficient means enough. It is enough. You don't need anything else. My grace is all you need to solve the problem, no matter how great it is, no matter how overwhelming it is, no matter how defeating it may look to you, no matter how depressive it is, no matter what emotions it generates in you, no matter how much afraid it makes you, no matter how devastating it might appear to be to your life and to the peace and stability of your life, God says that His grace has a solution that is better than, superior than, any problem, any heartache, any difficulty, any failure in our life. There is always hope. If you're still alive, and your heart's still beating, and you're still breathing, there is a recovery procedure, which is what he is introducing in verse 6. But he, God, gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, and he quotes 
Proverbs 3.34 from the Septuagint. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The interesting thing is this same verse is quoted in a very similar context, which we will have occasion to look at either later this evening or next week, in 1 Peter chapter 5. And it's important to understand exactly what that passage means. God gives a greater grace. That implies that there are levels of grace. We know that there is common grace. Common grace is that grace, that beneficence of God, the benevolence of God directed towards all men, believer and unbeliever alike. We had beautiful weather today. We all enjoyed it. We all appreciated it just as much as the unbelievers did. If God blesses the nation and we are prosperous, everyone benefits, believers and unbelievers alike. That is common grace. The air we breathe, the food we eat, the money we make, all of that is from the Lord ultimately, and He gives grace to all men at some level, common grace. Then there is saving grace. This is the grace that God gives at the instant of salvation where we are regenerated and God gives us 39 irrevocable absolutes at the point of salvation and one revocable, which is the filling of the Holy Spirit. So we have saving grace. Then we have two categories of spiritual life grace. The first is logistical grace. And we have studied this. This is that God is going to, in His grace, provide you with the physical resources to stay alive, food, shelter, clothing, uh, water, all of the physical things you need to stay alive, and He is going to also provide you with the spiritual nourishment you need. He will always provide that for you. He is ne- that is never dependent upon your actions, your decisions, or anything, whether you're a carnal believer, whether you're, you're a spiritual believer, whether you're a reversionist believer, whether you're a baby believer or a mature believer. God will always provide logistical grace. That's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 7, or Matthew chapter 6, when he talks about the fact that that all these things will be added unto you. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That's not talking to believers. That's talking to unbelievers, because you get the righteousness of God at the moment of salvation. Seek ye first the righteousness of God and His kingdom, and all these things will be added unto you. And just before that, he talked about how the lilies of the field are arrayed and how God takes care of the, the birds of the sky and He provides their food and their nourishment and all their basic needs. Why? Because He takes care of them. And same thing for the believer, that you possess the perfect righteousness of God. God is plus R and perfect justice. And when His righteousness sees your righteousness, it blesses you. What the righteousness of God approves, the justice of God then blesses. And that is, you're blessed because of the righteousness you received. It is the imputed plus R of Jesus Christ. It is not the result of your own behavior. Now, as you begin to grow, you have spiritual life grace and you have greater grace blessings. These are contingency blessings that are based upon growing to maturity so that you have the capacity to appreciate and utilize those greater grace blessings. Now, Paul says here, I mean, James says here, he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, Proverbs 3.34, God is opposed 
to the proud. And the word here for opposed is the word antitasso. Antitasso. It's a compound word in the Greek. A-N-T-I-T-A-S-S-O. Tasso has to do with uh, <clears throat> putting someone in a particular position. The anti can mean against or in substitution. In compound words, it tends to mean against. And it means to put somebody to set opposite, to put them against someone, to range in battle against, and to set oneself against in a confrontational position. That was its use in classical Greek. Now, the reason I emphasize that is because when the Septuagint was translated somewhere between the 2nd and 3rd century B.C., Koine was still developing in its infancy. So the meaning of antitasso probably had more to do with classical Greek meaning than later Koine meaning. Even in the Koine, it means to oppose someone to be hostile towards someone, or to show hostility to someone. But I think the portrayal in classical Greek, where Homer used it to describe opposing war forces, combat forces, indicates that God is making war against the arrogant. God sets himself against the arrogant. If you are a child of God, you become an enemy of the Lord, and he is going to set himself against you in your arrogant carnality. So he is reminding his readers, remember they're Jewish believers, so he quotes from the Old Testament, he says, God is ranging himself against the arrogant. And the word there translated proud is the Greek word, huperephanos. Huperephanos is not this normal word for just pride. It is instead a technical word for arrogance and should be translated arrogance as much stronger than simply pride. God sets himself against the arrogant, but provides grace. And it's the Greek verb didomi, and whenever you have this word, as I've said many times, whenever you have this word, which means to give, that we ought to think about grace. This is the verb for grace, that God gives freely out of His own character based on who He is and what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And God gives grace to the humble. And here we have the word Tapinas. Tapinas. T-A-P-E-I-N-O-S. Which is related to the adjective Tapinafrasune, which is the character quality that Jesus exhibits when He is not going to stay in heaven, but is going to voluntarily restrict the independent use of His attributes. And even though He was God, did not think it equality with God something to be grasped, and he limited himself and took on the form of a servant. Philippians chapter 2 is the classic passage in illustrating the essence of true and genuine humility. 
being a servant. So we're back to the subject we covered in first class, first hour in Galatians on Sunday morning, the importance of humility as the character quality that is going to characterize those who rule and reign with Jesus Christ. And he demonstrated that, and we saw that second hour as well. He demonstrated that by his entrance into uh, Jerusalem, not on a horse at, on, on when he was accept, uh, when, when the crowds were uh, praising him, but he came on the colt of a donkey. So what we have here is a topical sentence. The issue is that God is going to be against you if you're in carnality because you're operating on the arrogant skills, but he will provide grace if you humble yourself to God. Now, humility begins with authority orientation. You have to remind yourself that God's the one in charge of your life and not you. And so the issue is what God says and not what you feel, what you think, or what you'd like to do. It means basically turning around, snapping to attention, saluting and saying, Yes, sir, God, whatever you want. And that's exactly where James goes. See, verses 7 through 10 are going to explain the principle given in the verse, quote, from Proverbs 3.34. And there we're going to have ten aorist active imperatives. Ten imperatives. Now, this is where Greek exegesis comes in. An aorist imperative emphasizes a priority item. And it often conveys a sense of urgency. And of course, when you're in carnality, it is a matter of urgency for you to confess your sins and recover the filling of the Holy Spirit, fellowship with the Lord, and start moving forward. And that's why he is expressing this urgency towards these carnal believers who have all these conflicts and quarrels and antagonism. The first thing they have to do, if they're going to move in the direction of humility, is to submit to God. And here we have the word, let me go right back up here. Here we have a word, huper tasso, H-U-P-E-R-T-A-S-S-O. Excuse me. Notice how James has moved from antitasso to hupertasso. Here it's war against God, and here it's submission under God. Huper is under, tasso is in position under authority. Submit, therefore, to God. Now, the Scripture says a lot about submission. This verb is used several times. So let's look at some of these other passages so we get a sense of what this word means and the urgency here. Romans 13.1 let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. This means that you are to be obedient to the authorities that God has placed over you in the government. At the time that Paul wrote Romans 13.1, he was not talking about a representative republic that was following a constitution based upon the word of God and a Christian nation. Not at all. In fact, there never has been a Christian nation. Anytime anybody's tried to develop a Christian nation, it's always collapsed because arrogance always rises to the surface. Nations cannot be Christian. Why? They can't be saved. Nations don't go to hell. Nations don't go to heaven. It's, it's absurd to talk about a Christian nation. Now, you can have a nation that has been influenced by Christian principles, but that's something else again. When Paul wrote Romans chapter 13... The emperor at the time was a man by the name of Nero. 
And we all know that Nero was like Idi Amin, Adolf Hitler, Ayatollah Khomeini, uh, uh, Saddam Hussein, any of the most wicked, horrible leaders of all time. So this is not an ideal government that is functioning on correct principles. He wrote at a time when there was one of the most evil dictators of all time at the head of government. And in that same passage he says, we are to be subject to governing authorities because those which exist, including Nero and the most horrific, horrible, tyrannical, totalitarian state, those which exist are established by God. So even though they may not be worthy of of respect, they are to be respected. Why? Because if you start violating the principle of authority orientation and start sitting in judgment on whether or not the authority ought to be obeyed, you are putting yourself in the position of God. You are creating a trauma in your soul that will make it easy for you to violate any other authority. Even when that authority is right, you're setting a sole precedent of disrespect and disobedience to authorities. And this is why we always have to remember that we have to respect the position of authority, even though the person may not be worthy of respect. That's why wives are told to be submissive to their husbands. doesn't say be submissive to your godly husband. Be submissive to your spiritual husbands. Be submissive to your husbands when they're doing the right thing and you've made sure of it. It doesn't say that. Now, I know you want it to say, but it doesn't say that. It says that you are to submit to, to your husband. Why? As to the Lord. The degree to which you show submission to the authority of your husband, you're not going to like me after this is a direct reflection of how well you submit to the authority of Jesus Christ in your life. That's what the Scripture says. If you want to know how well you're able to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ in your life, ladies, look at how well you submit to the authority of your husband. Because the principle is that however you submit to authority in one area, that's pretty much how you're going to submit to authority in any other area in life, whether it's at the job whether it's in the classroom, whether it's at home, or whether it's with the Lord. Now, husbands, you're going to get nailed later. Right now, that's the ladies are in focus. Submission. Let Romans 13.1, 1 Corinthians 14.34, Paul says, Let women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but let them subject themselves, hupotasso, be in subordination to the authorities of the church, just as the law also says. Now, that doesn't mean that he, he's importing the law. He's saying, look, there are a lot of things in common between the New Testament and the Old Testament. And the law says the same thing, and the principle continues. 1 Corinthians 15:27. just to make sure you understand the significance of hupotasso, Jesus Christ is the subject, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. So just as everything in the universe will be under the direct authority of Jesus Christ, you know, this isn't by popular approval, this isn't by vote, majority rule, or anything else. Everything in creation will be under the authority of Jesus Christ after the second coming, and that's the principle. 
Ephesians 1.22, And He, God the Father, put all things in subjection under His feet, God the Son, and gave Him His head over all things to the church. This relates within the body of Christ. Ephesians 5.21, And be subject, hupotasso, to one another in the fear of Christ. But just as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands. Also it's used of slaves to masters in Titus 2.9. Urge bond slaves to submit to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing and not argumentative. I'm not saying that women are slaves. Those are two different passages. I just want to make sure nobody's going to you know, fade out with your concentration in the middle of that and think that I equated husbands and wives to masters and slaves. I did not. Everybody awake? Okay. Now, the point is that this is the mandate given to us as believers. Submit, therefore, to God. It is a strong statement that we need to recognize the authority of God in our life to dictate how we think, what we think, what we do, how we do it. That's the first mandate. You're never going to get anywhere in the Christian life if you don't understand the authority of God. Furthermore, you're never going to get anywhere in life if you don't understand authority orientation. In the military, at the job, whatever it might be, in the classroom, at home, everywhere we are in life, there is the principle of authority. Submit, therefore, to God. And then we come to a fascinating passage. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And that plugs us right into spiritual warfare issues and the angelic conflict, and we don't have time to even touch that this evening, so we'll save that until next time when we flip over to Ephesians 6 and start looking at the spiritual armor and how this word is used there. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, Father, we thank you for your love, for the fact that you uh, love us and you will discipline us when we are in carnality, and you desire for us to recover, and you have given us the grace recovery procedure and everything we need in grace to recover, no matter how horrible our carnality has been, no matter how extended the reversionism has been, you will always uh, provide a solution that is greater than any problem we can ever imagine. Father, we pray that you would remind us of these things and encourage us and challenge us with them. In Jesus' name, amen. Remember, Bible class next week, Tuesday night, angelic conflict. Wednesday night, you're on your own.